And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is Wednesday, as you know, and it's back to our Salvation Series. We've been doing this for seven weeks, maybe. Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself have been tackling salvation, and it's been a blast. And Peter, I don't know... um, about you, but I'm I'm loving this series. Yeah, it's something you and I have talked about for a long time, haven't we? Where we've just had listeners over the years and, and uh, in my classrooms over the years as well, where you do just end up with this topic of salvation that seems to kind of come up in passing at certain times, but we don't really get a chance to dig into it. And I kind of thought we would maybe last three or four weeks, but who knew that there was even way more into all of this than we would have guessed. Yeah, way more. And I think this is maybe week six or seven, and I know we've got at least three more to go. Yeah. Um, and possibly more. Just because the more I study this, the more I feel like I got to keep studying this. I'm not getting smarter, by the way. (laughs) You might be, but I'm not. I certainly am learning some things in this. And, you know, I guess it makes sense at the end of the day, right? If if after the fall in Genesis 3 and and the people were exiled from the garden, God didn't give up on his people. And so there's this long history of a God who at his very heart is salvation. I mean, when Jesus came into this world, his name meant salvation. And so God has always been moving in a salvific way among his people throughout all of this time in history. And that extends into today. So... I guess it shouldn't be that big of a surprise that we've seen so much depth and richness from the different guests over this series, given how central this theme is to the biblical text. Mm-hmm. Uh, today we want to talk about um, salvation and evangelism, you know, really as a way of doing life. We don't want you to think of applying techniques to somebody. We want you to live your life a certain way. And our our special guest today, and I've been so excited to have her on the show uh, from the beginning of this series, is Becky Pippert. And she's written a number of books and some of her great contributions that she's going to bring to the show today is going to come from her books, uh, Stay Salt. The world has changed. Our message must not. And Becky is a, a speaker and a uh, author and has a tremendous ministry all over the world. And she's with us today. Becky, welcome. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to talking to you. And what a great subject. Oh, my. Yeah, you know, we've we've said in the past, you know, when the subject of salvation comes up on the show, we might talk about it for 10 or 15 minutes and we feel like we're leaving so much on the table and then we move on and we think mm-hmm. we don't we got to spend more time on this. So I kind of yeah. came up with a yeah. wish list of guests of which you were uh right up there at the top of the list. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I'm looking forward to it and it is it is a tremendous uh topic and how do we connect you know, the different aspects of the gospel, for example, to salvation. How, how do we do that, you know, where we're talking with someone and and they've got questions about particular aspects of Christianity? And how do we naturally but effectively help them see um you know, what it means, uh, what the gospel means, but how it connects to actually knowing God. Um, so it, it's going to be fun to talk. Yeah, and I just want to make sure, uh, Becky, you know that um, the co-host for this uh, project is Dr. Peter Kapsner, <laughs> who's in studio. And I don't know if you've officially met, but... Hi, Becky. Uh, no, I haven't. There, Hi. There he is. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to meet you, too. And if you hear really smart questions being asked to you today, it's probably going to be from him, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> so my, that, I guess that would be That's my cue. That's your cue, that, yes. That'd be my cue. See how smart we are here, Bill? No, I love it. <laughs> yeah. The pressure. Oh, I know. the pressure. I love it. You know, and, and Becky, I think even just what was sort of right in uh, in what you were talking about in your intro there, 
is the idea that sharing the gospel or being a part of of bringing salvation into this world, partnering with God in that way. I know for me growing up in the church, I, it was something that I was always very afraid to do. And we were sort of given certain techniques, like maybe the four spiritual laws as little booklets and stuff. And, th- and those were helpful, and I'm glad I had them. But I never could really find an entry point very often into conversations with people where suddenly I would take out the four spiritual laws and work through it. And and so it, you have some different ideas just in terms of being able to present the gospel and present the, the invitation to salvation just as part of a way of life. Mm-mm. You know, when I look at how Jesus spoke with people um, and how he did evangelism, what has always been so powerful to me is how he listened, that he didn't jump in and give the gospel, mm. wait till they inhaled, and then, <laughs> you know, oh good, they inhaled, I can, I can bring the gospel. He really listened. He asked a lot of questions. He found out who he was speaking to, and um you know, where their points of resistance might be, and of course, where their questions are. And I I think that's probably the foundation, is that even before we share the gospel, um, we, we need to know how to relate to people in a way that is both full of grace and truth. And what I find in evangelism is sometimes people are unbelievably gracious and loving and walking alongside. They just never get to the truth part. Hmm. which means for leaving people in the lurch, or they're really good on sharing the truth. They're just not so good at relationship. And I think we've got to learn both, how to walk alongside of people, love them, be full of grace, but how do we communicate the truth? And if we're full of grace and if we are walking alongside of people in love and asking questions and listening to what they have to say, we're going to find it so much easier to actually bring up the topic of faith naturally. Um, So, for example, um, when I did my book um, that Bill was referring to, Stay Salt, you know, the world has changed, our message must not. The book has actually just come out. And one of the things I decided to do wasn't just talk about, okay, how do we do it? You know, what is the methodology, you know, the the method, et cetera. Um, But I really wanted to look at the gospel, and say, all right, what is it we believe? And so we know it's creation and fall, redemption, the cross, resurrection, return. But look at the issue of just the doctrine of sin, for example. How do you talk about sin in a culture that doesn't believe it? Mm. How, How do you get from you know, explaining that aspect of the gospel, but to make people even interested in the first place. And in in the book, uh, Stay Salt, I talk about um, meeting a very famous, it turned out to be, he was a very famous race car driver, and I knew nothing about that field, so I didn't know uh, that I found out later he was quite famous. But anyway, we're talking, and, we're, and we I met him on a very long flight, and I started asking him questions and tell me your story. And he said, well, I've got quite a story. And then he told me that he had been in a near fatal car accident that almost ended his career. And then um, he began drinking, then became an alcoholic, had another horrible car accident in which he nearly died. And he said, 
I said, well, what happened after that? And he said, you know, I was in the hospital and they told me I will never walk. And that night he said, I just cried out. And I, he said, I'm not religious. I don't, didn't know if I believed in God. But I said, if there's anybody listening, I want you to help me. Because if you can help me overcome my alcoholism, I'm going to find out who you are. I'm going to look for you until I find you. So then he began um uh, you know, telling me kind of where he was in the process. And he said, um, what I'm working on right now is I've really been uh, in AA, you have to acknowledge your problems. And it's been hard on my pride, but let me tell you, it it is something I've really sought to do. And I said, I am so impressed with you. I said, because the hardest thing in the world is to stop blaming everybody else and own it, take responsibility. I said, I just have such respect for you. And he went, wow, Becky, you really seem to understand and and you don't feel judgmental. Hey, are you in recovery too? (laughs) And I said, yes, I am, but not for alcohol. I said, I'm in recovery for a problem that actually is much deeper than alcoholism. And his eyes got really big. And he goes, would you mind sharing what your problem is? And I said, oh, I don't mind at all. I'm in recovery from actually what the Bible calls sin. And I said, you know why I don't seem judgmental to you? Because I've learned the only thing that separates people are symptoms. But the underlying disease is is actually something we all share. He goes, well, I don't get it. What's the difference between being a drunk and being a sinner? Isn't it the same thing? And I said, well, alcoholism is the behavior, but the real culprit is actually what lies behind the behavior. This this addiction to ourselves, this insisting on running the show. And he said, oh, wow, I can really identify with that. He said, boy, I've got, I've had to, I insist on running the show. But he goes, Becky, I don't get it. If AA is the treatment for alcoholism, what's the treatment for sin? I said, well, you told me you once felt like you had it all. And uh, uh, when it, your life fell apart, you became an alcoholic. You've achieved sobriety, but now you're telling me that um, since joining AA, you've been trying to find the name of the higher power. I said, Rick, do you know the name of the higher power yet that you learned in AA? He said, I don't. And I said, well, let me tell you, his name is Jesus. And the treatment for sin, the treatment for this addiction to ourselves is that Jesus died on the cross. We've all tried to live our lives as if we're in charge, we're in control. And he said, oh, Becky, no, no, no. Because I, I, I told him, we, we can come to Christ. You know, he takes our sin. He goes, oh, oh, no, my, my, my sins are way too bad. To way, you, you, you just be shocked. And I said, you know what? I wouldn't be shocked at all. Because all of us, all of us have sent Jesus to the cross. It, it, it doesn't matter that my sins are less colorful than your sins. We've all sent him to the cross. Well, we, now I'm doing it a short version, but we talked a long, long time. And then he said, if somebody wanted to make this their own, what would they do? And so I shared with him how to become a Christian. And he was a tough guy. He was rough hewn, you know. And uh, all of a sudden he bows his head. And, he, and on his own, he prayed and asked the Lord to come into his life. And, uh, uh, but it, where did it begin? 
where it began was understanding we all have the same problem and we all need the same cure. And he isn't, he felt so guilty about his sin of alcoholism. When I was saying, oh, listen, I got a problem that's a lot worse than that, <laughs> you know, and I've been forgiven. That's the kind of connections I think we need to make when we're talking to somebody. Um, that suffering uh, from guilt, that is suffering from a God complex, uh, and then letting, making sure they see we identify completely. And and the problem that that they're talking about is a problem we have found helpful. Not the alcoholism necessarily, but the problem that's deeper even than that. Now, the difficulty is there's a lot of people that today that don't feel guilt consciously about their sin. So you also have to look at how do you talk to somebody who doesn't feel any guilt. But anyway, that's the start. Boy, that's beautiful. Thank Incredible. You. I love that. Yeah. Maybe when we come back, we can talk about that, how to talk to someone who doesn't have an understanding or recognize that they have sin. And the race car driver story is fantastic. If I was a race car driver, <laughs> I would have a bumper sticker that's, that would say, if you can read this, you're losing. <laughs> That'd just be me. Yeah. You know, they have, and, and you'd be right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, they have these million-dollar cars, and you have to get in by climbing in through the window. I don't get it. I want an extra yeah. car. <laughs> All right. Becky Pippert is our special guest. Our Salvation Series continues. Dr. Peter Capster and I are, are at the uh, the host chairs. We'll be right back. We're so glad to be back with Becky Pippert and uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner and I during the break said, we just want to shut up and listen. That's what we want to do. Yeah, I think we had about 47 <laughs> different ways we could have followed up on that story. It was phenomenal, Becky. Just I mean, what an incredible oh. story. And oh. it, you ended with sort of this idea of somebody who really saw their desperate need for a savior because they had come to grips with their sin. But Bill had pointed out before the break that what what do you do when you're with people, maybe friends or family members, people that you know, um, colleagues at work? Uh, you referenced earlier in the show that people just really aren't mindful of even the idea of sin anymore. And, and that is obviously sort of a starting point uh, for many people to actually get into this conversation. But what do you do if people are not even aware that there's sin? Okay. Let's just go back just a minute, because what I would say first is, I don't think Christians understand sin. Mm. I think the the culture has impacted us so much, and it's why I decided it was so important. Um, you know, in the, in the book I wrote, Stay Salt, I wanted to make sure that we really got it ourselves. We have to understand it first. Then, how do we communicate it? So, for instance, uh, a psychiatrist friend of mine, not a Christian, she was describing to me all the typical problems that draw people to seek her help. And then she stopped and said, we, you know, I mean, kind of with a, a, a bit of a smile, but a, a definitely skeptic. She went, oh, that's right, but you're a Christian, so you think the problem is we're all sinners. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, well, I, I said, actually, that's true, but I said, well, how do you think the Bible defines sin? And she said, oh, I don't know, probably something along the lines of drug, sex, and rock and roll. <laughs> and I said, that's behavior. 
And I said, from the biblical perspective, sin at its core isn't just misdeeds. It, it, bad behavior is the result of sin. It's not the cause of sin. She goes, okay, I'll bite. What's the root cause of sin? Now, that's where we have to understand ourselves. And the Bible essentially says it's two things, that, that sin is unbelief. In other words, we have a God complex. And that's the problem with the race car driver. He had a God complex. He thought he was in charge and control until his life totally fell apart. The other aspect of sin in the Bible is idolatry. We worship the wrong thing. And uh, so what would be an example, and particularly this worshiping the wrong thing, um, that often I meet people that, that there is guilt, actually, I am because God has made us, but um, but it's, it's, it's deeper. Surfacely, they don't see it. So how can we, and I actually think Tim Keller says this, and I agree with him, it's easier to talk to people in this culture about the problem of um, worshiping the wrong thing um, than, um, uh, than, than the problem of unbelief. But okay, so how do we talk about that, the, the problem of worshiping the wrong thing? Because they think it's entirely right to worship themselves, you know. Well, for seven years, my husband and I lived in the U.K. We've actually only come back about two years ago. And so we traveled all over the all over the UK and all over Europe. We were there for seven years. In London, I had a hairdresser who was gay, and I knew him the entire seven years that I was there. And his name was Theo. And as we trust grew between us, Theo told me he was gay, and he really shared his life with me. I shared my life and faith with him, and he respected my faith, but he wasn't sure if God existed. So one day I'm walking into the salon. And the minute I saw him, I realized something was wrong. He was so low. I sat in the chair, and he, I just kept looking at him in the mirror. And finally, I put my hand on his arm, and I said, Theo, are you going to tell me what's wrong? And he looked at me, and he said, Becky, you are the only customer all day who even noticed that I'm depressed. And he said, Becky, I've had a partner for several years. You know that. And he said, Becky, I cherished him. I worshipped him. But he moved out last week, uh, and I'm absolutely devastated. And he said, so you're a Christian. You're going to tell me our relationship was doomed because I'm gay. And I took a deep breath, and I said, Theo, listen, I am so grieved to see you in this much pain. But actually, I think the issue you're struggling with is even deeper than sexual identity. I said, because I have a straight friend, Anna, and she just told me the exact same thing. <laughs> she meant the love of her life, was certain their love would heal her, uh, and he recently left her for another woman. She's now clinically depressed. I said, well, what I find so interesting is that you both told me you worshipped your partners. That's very insightful. He said, why is that insightful? I said, because we've been created to love and worship God. We have been given worshiping natures. But where we run into trouble is when, when we try to worship something other than God, when we put something else in God's place. And it could be good things. It could be bad things. But God's substitutes are always going to fail us because we aren't big enough 
to build, they aren't big enough for us to build our lives upon. He said, that is amazing. That is exactly what my partner told me. He said, I was trying to make him my God, my everything. And he goes, Theo, I'm not God. I can't meet your every need and it's exhausting. And I said, that is why God's substitutes are actually seen as sin in the Bible because we're demanding that they give us what only God can give us. Only God can give us identity and purpose, that sense of being totally understood and perfectly loved. And I said, do you know, Theo, the Bible has a word for God's substitutes. It's called idolatry. And he looked at me. I remember he put down the the blow dryer, and he turns the chair around to look at me, eyeball to eyeball, and he goes, you're telling me, according to the Bible, my suffering is due to the fact I've been worshiping the wrong thing? I said, exactly. And Theo, so have I. You're not alone. All of us have tried God's substitutes. All of us have turned from God and tried to run our own lives as if we're in charge. It's the primary reason for all the brokenness around us. I said, Theo, we've been created for a relationship with God, for God to live at the center of our lives. And that's why the Christian message is called good news, because God loves us, and he's been seeking us for so long. But, Theo, we got to own the bad news that we've chosen something else in place of God before we can uh, receive the good news. And he said, Becky, what scares me so much is what you're saying makes so much sense. That to find the love I've been searching for all my life, I've got to get my relationship to God sorted first. But I couldn't come to God. In fact, he said the same thing the race car driver said. I couldn't come to God, Becky, not all the things that I, of all the things I've done. I said, Theo, the only reason any of us can come to God is because God loves us. Jesus came from heaven. He died on the cross for our sin. And everybody needs God's forgiveness. No one deserves this gift all we can do is say thank you god thank you and give our lives to him and he you know what he said he said becky from the bottom of my heart thank you for speaking plainly without making me feel judged thank you for saying you used god substitute yourself Thank you for telling me that God loves me and wants a relationship with me when I am feeling so worthless. He said, you've already given me a Bible. You've given me some books before. I'm going to start reading them. Now, why did I focus my conversation with Theo in the way I did? Because Theo's deepest problem was that he didn't understand where true fulfillment comes where we really get our ultimate identity. Now, I believe the Bible is very clear about God's design for human sexuality. No question about Mm -hmm. that. But the root of the problem is he'd made an idol of human love. And that's where we start. Becky, we're going to need to take a very short break. Uh, Becky Pippard is our guest, and she's written a number of books. And her approach is irresistible, isn't it, Peter? It's just just incredible. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Her book is Stay Salt, The World Has Changed, Uh, Our Message Hasn't. We'll take a little break. Be right back. (laughs) We are back with our Salvation Summer Series 
And our special guest is Becky Pippert. And she's written a number of books, but Stay Salt is the one that's most recent. The world has changed. Our message is not. And Becky, during the break, because Peter and I are talking about you 100 miles an hour during the break. (laughs) And when you were talking to Theo and you were suggesting and telling him that you yourself uh, were a sinner and you uh, had... um, Peter, what's the... An idol worshiper as an, well. You were an idol worshiper yeah. as well. You didn't say that in a sort of a technique sort of way to try to get on common ground. You really meant it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. See, the, the interesting thing is, what we know is people are struggling with sin. They don't understand that it's sin. Um, they are still responsible uh, for it. But what they need is to realize that, first, only God defines us. He is the one that's getting us what we really are looking for, our, the true identity, forgiveness, identity, purpose, love, all, all of that. But they have to understand, they have to sense our compassion and our love, and that we ourselves identify as sinners, and we're not looking down on them in judgment. We're, we're, we are... Um, we have been saved and we have been forgiven. But the very fact of that is why we're not judgmental. And that is what enables them to hear us because they don't feel we're standing above them. Uh, and uh, we're going to the heart of, of what has kept us from receiving all that God wants. And we're sharing that so that they can know that 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 Jesus is there and that he wants them. The, the wonderful news of the gospel is that our sin and God's righteous judgment on sin doesn't have the last word. The, what we long for has been made possible by God through Christ to re- rescue us. So it is when they realize we're real. Let me tell you, that's what the world is looking for. People always say to me in training conferences, oh, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? People are going to ask us questions all the time we can't answer. (laughs) And we go, fantastic question. I haven't a clue what the answer is. But I'm so glad God brought you into my life so I can learn and grow. They want real. They, they, They want humility. They want to know somebody's listening, but they also want somebody who is has some answers and um, who who has a certainty without being uh, obnoxious you know there is a desire for for the the well it's the power of the Holy Spirit working through us that that we have found what they're looking for and I think what we've been talking about thus far is is one aspect of evangelism and that is understanding the gospel ourselves, looking at how Jesus spoke to people, but also understanding um, what the gospel really means. And that's a lifelong pursuit. You know, that isn't going to happen in a a weekend. That's the wonderful thing. And, And, you know, I had an experience with a Christian, and I've had the same, I've heard the same thing over and over again with non Christians, but I, I, had a, a conversation with a woman who came to me right after I'd spoken. And she said that she had, and her fiance at the time had been leaders of their youth ministry in their church. And she said, um, 
and they were just loved and respected and admired, and God really used them. And she said, what I'm about to tell you, I have never told anybody, only he he was now her husband. But she said, um, we uh, began to have sexual relations before we got married, and then we found out I was pregnant. And for us to go to the church and admit we were pregnant, it was just too horrifying. So we did the only thing we felt was an option. I had an abortion. And she said, I had an abortion just a few months before I got married. And she said, Becky, um, I, I remember walking down the aisle and everybody was looking at me and smiling and, you know, how wonderful I was. And, and all I could say to myself is, but I know what you've done. I know what you've done. And she said, I just don't understand. How could I have done it? How could I have been capable of taking the life of my innocent baby? Now, I was hearing that from a real Christian, but I've heard it from many non-Christians as well. And when she said, how could I have done it? And I cried out to the Lord silently and said, Lord, you've got to give me a word for this sister. And then I felt the Lord gave it to me. And I said, Katie... I don't understand why you're so surprised, because this isn't the first death of an innocent you're responsible for. It's a second. The cross shows all of us as crucifiers, aborters or non-aborters, religious atheists. We're all responsible for the death of the only true innocent who ever lived. I said, now, Jesus gave his life as a gift. He chose to die for our human rebellion. But do you think there's any human sin that we have that didn't nail Jesus to the cross? Martin Luther said, the German reformer, we carry Christ's nails in our pockets. So if you're responsible for the death of the only true innocent who ever lived, why are you so surprised that you and your fiancé are responsible for the death of a lesser innocent? I'm surprised that you're surprised. And do you know, for the first time, she stopped crying. And she said, you're right. Jesus went to the cross for, for all of our sin. And I've just realized something. I've felt more guilt over the death of my own son than the death of God's son. But she said, Becky, if the cross shows me, I've done the worst thing any human being could ever do. I am responsible for the death of Jesus even though it was his choice. But, what, you know, he went to the cross because of sin, and that has been forgiven. How can any other sin not be forgiven, even my abortion? And tears streaming down her face, she said, Oh, Becky, that's amazing grace. And that's what I want to say is we've got to keep going back to what we believe and letting it work and asking God that, that he will work the reality of the gospel in our lives, that we believe it and know it and are free. And it will give us, I think, so much more confidence as we share the good news with others. And Becky, I hear in the stories that you've told so far in this hour between the race car driver and the hairstylist and now uh, the woman who had had the abortion, that people have really come to the end of their rope. And, and there's a real time and an opening and, and wisdom needed in those in those really vulnerable places. It, is it wrong to think about praying for some of our loved ones or people who maybe are uh, in a place of rebellion or a place of sort of shaking their fist at God, that maybe they too would have circumstances where they come to the end of their rope? Is, is that sort of one of the key openings that people might have? I think about 
in my own life. And that's clearly when all of a sudden I woke up to, to needing a savior. Oh, listen, I don't come from a Christian home. I was the first person to become a Christian. And by the grace of God, and it took many, many years, eventually every member of my family came to the Lord, but it took a long time. And absolutely, we have got to cry out in prayer. I mean, the foundation of evangelism is prayer. The foundation of it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the first part of the book, of my book, Stay Salt, is all about that. It is how... How can we learn when we know we're weak and we know we're inadequate? What do we do? Because that's what I always hear people say. Christians say, oh, I can't witness. I don't have a gift. Uh, I have the wrong personality. You know, when the Lord, you know, when he was uh, uh, right before he ascended into heaven, what he said, he didn't say, go ye therefore, all you extroverts. And uh, all you scripture memory buffs, and uh, okay, all you evangelists, go make disciples. The rest of you just hang out, <laughs> sing, sing some hymns. No, he said, all of you can go because the power of the Holy Spirit is I'm going to give to you. And of course, he gives it to us when we come to Christ. But it is the power of the Holy Spirit and learning how to pray, as you were saying, how to pray and and cry out to the Lord on behalf of our loved ones and asking them to to um, to come to the end of their rope and uh, it is so it's it's learning how to pray but it's also celebrating our weakness when when Paul said uh, take away this thorn in the flesh I can't stand it you know and the Lord said no because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul goes, well, all right then. You know, if that's true, then I'm going to glory in my weakness. We've got to learn how to do this. But to go back to your question, we must learn to not give up and to keep praying and praying and praying for our loved ones, for our family. Now, um, if you can stand another story, <laughs> I, I, um, you know, one of the uh, of all my family, you know, my dad was an atheist and he came to the Lord. My mother came to the Lord much sooner, and my sister. The only one left in my family was my brother, and uh, Bobby. His name is Bobby, and we were very close. We were only uh, we're Irish twins. We're just twelve uh, months and two weeks apart. And everybody that knew my brother loved him. He was full of life and a tremendously funny and this huge heart. But he made very significant mistakes in his adult life. And so he consequently experienced very hard years. And we always remained close. But though he admired my faith, it, it, he never made it his own. And every time I'd see him go through one catastrophe after another, and I'd think, this is it. This is it. This is going to be the thing. And, and yet he would never come to the Lord. Well, when we moved to the U.K., the, we were there for seven years, and it was the first year that I was there, and Bobby phoned. And I could tell that he wasn't his usual bullet self because he was just so outgoing and so much fun. And finally he said, oh, Becky, I have such regrets about my life. I said, Bobby, that's wonderful. <laughs> he said, it is? I said, Bobby, the gospel makes the most sense to people with profound regrets. 
He said, yeah, but Becky, when I look at how I've lived my life and then I look at yours, I just feel so ashamed. I said, okay, I grant you, your sins have been more colorful than mine. (laughs) Uh, But I said, Bobby, don't you know what we have in common? We're both sinners who need God's forgiveness. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He died for us. No one deserves God's grace, but it's there waiting for you. Now, I had shared my faith with Bobby so many times. I was afraid to get my hopes up. But I said to my husband, Dick, you know, I've never heard Bobby take it in this deeply as I did. And and when we hung up, he said, Becky, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. A few weeks after that, I really felt the Lord nudging me to gather my family together. We were going to go back for Thanksgiving and stay through Christmas, then come back to Europe. And so I felt the Lord really nudging me to to invite all of my family uh, to join us for Thanksgiving. And on the day, and they all did, and Bobby walks through the door, and I took one look at him. And I honestly, I went, what's happened to Bobby? He just looked different. And it was such a busy time of hosting that, that we never had a private moment alone. And But after everybody left, uh, we discovered Bobby had left something behind. And so I called him and said, hey, you left a bag. And he came back. He walks in the door. He sits down and he said, Becky, I finally did it. I told Jesus yes. I surrendered my life to him. And he said, Becky, since that moment, you cannot imagine all the prayers that God has answered. He left. I turned to Dick, my husband, and I said, for the first time in my life, I know my brother belongs to Jesus. The family circle has been closed. Exactly five days later, my only brother, my beloved brother, was killed in a car crash. And as I processed my grief and my shock what I came to see is that God and his love and mercy knowing what was going to happen had nudged me in prayer to gather my whole family for Thanksgiving because God alone knew it'd be the last time we would ever see him alive and in his infinite mercy he allowed us to know that Bobby had given his life to him uh, I probably isn't time to tell the other part of the story, but the funeral was unbelievable because all the Bobby, everybody loved Bobby. He he was kind of Uncle Buck. If you ever saw the movie <laughs> Uncle Buck, it was all I Uncle mean, Buck. <laughs> it, he really was. He even kind of looked like him. Uh-huh. Big guy, you know, but so full of love, but not walking in the right way. And um, so Dick and I were at, gave the eulogies, and I talked about what happened uh, to Bobby. And and I, I told the story of him coming back and, and what he said to me. Now, uh, when we walked in, all right, so, so we, we did the funeral. After the funeral, there was a party for Bob. One of his friends, she, she had a restaurant, and she closed it down and said, everybody come. And she invited everybody. Dick and I walked in, and as I'm walking in, I said, oh, Dick, I'm so drained. I said, I just, uh, you know, God was really with us in the funeral, but I said, let's just make this quick. We didn't sit down. This is like um, after Thanksgiving, so it was early December, and this is in Champaign, Illinois, so it's cold, and that's my hometown. And we didn't take off our coats for two hours. <laughs> we didn't sit down. Everybody came to us wow. wanting to talk. And at the very end, I went up to thank the hostess. 
I'd gone to high school with her, and there was a guy I'd gone to high school with, 10 bottles of beer in front of him, uh, empty. And he said, Becky, I need to tell you, these last two months, everybody, because Bobby had become a Christian, and then it was two months later that he died. But when I came back from Europe, then that was five days after um, that I got the word that he told me he'd become a Christian. But he said, I need to tell you, everybody saw the difference. We saw the peace. We saw the happiness. And he said, I'm not a religious man, but what you and Dick said in your eulogies made sense. And I'm so struck by your comment, how can we reject something and consider ourselves intelligent people if we've never even read the accounts of Jesus? So I'm going to take you up on your challenge. What do you suggest I start reading? So I wrote down some Christian books and and put it on a napkin. And then I turned it, and just as I'm leaving, I said, why don't you start by reading one of the Gospels? He said, that's exactly what I'll do. And we walk across the room, and he shouts out, hey, Becky, what's the Gospel? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I came back, and, but it, it. I mean, what Bobby's story reveals, God never gives up pursuing us and loving us. And what my brother's funeral reminded me of so deeply is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what this world so desperately needs. God keeps pursuing people, and we must not give up, not ever. Right. Becky, do you have 10 more minutes for us? We we need to take Uh, a short break. Terrific. Becky Pippert is our guest. Her latest book is Stay Salt. The world has changed. Our message must not. We'll be right back. Show Becky Pippert is our special guest in our Salvation series with Dr. Peter Kapsner. Becky, I know when I was a, a young, enthusiastic person that wanted to share my faith, I always felt like uh, it was a hundred-yard dash. I better share the entire gospel in a single conversation <laughs> and go from A to Z and make sure I get everything covered. Yeah. And some yeah. of these stories you've been sharing, like with Theo. You were going to him for seven years, and you're building a relationship and always looking for moments to share truth. So maybe talk to our listeners about just to be free of that feeling that you've got to always give the entire gospel in in one conversation. I think I think the the model for this biblically is is looking at Jesus. Jesus didn't always give the whole gospel in every conversation, and in fact he would he would. Uh, look at the person, listen to the person, begin to understand what the problem was. As I've said already, he asked questions, he told stories, he drew the person out. But then what's fascinating to me, the gospel, the essence of the gospel is the same. You know, the biblical, you know, uh, uh, line um, is, is creation, fall, redemption, resurrection, return. But if you try and go over every single aspect of that, um, <laughs> Their eyes are going to glaze over. Now, here's the thing. You need to be able to share the gospel in a, in a short way. You can do it without going into depth about everything. So there's, there's two ways you need to learn this. One is by doing a short version. Have that in your backpack, as it were. But the second thing is um, keep growing and understanding each aspect of the gospel. So when you're speaking to somebody, and if you find out, like when I was speaking 
to the race car driver or I was speaking, you know, with any of these stories, I was focused on pretty much one aspect of the gospel first in order to dialogue with that person. Now, Jesus did that with the woman at the well, you know, um, and because here is a woman, you know, uh, that has a, a sketchy lifestyle, you know, with five husbands, the guy she's living with now is not her husband. But what does Jesus talk about in the way he presented the gospel? Thirst. You've been coming here to draw water, but I have water where you'd never have to come here again that wells up into eternal life. Um, Fascinating way of introducing the topic because it was her problem. She was looking in all the wrong places and she was thirsty and he is talking about the answer to that chapter before that's john 4 john 3 he's talking to um nicodemus and he goes yeah well you've got to be born again all of the it's really an interesting study to look in the bible at the different metaphors that jesus uses for the gospel and how he introduces the topic so two things learn a short version and also know how to understand enough of the gospel to be able to talk about an area that is of interest to that person. Now, when I talk about why it's important to know a short version of the gospel, one of the things I want to say is that people are hungrier than we realize. They're open to spiritual dialogue if we do it in the right way. We're listening. We're showing compassion. We're asking questions. We're willing to learn from them, too. Um, they're, they're not evangelistic projects. And, and modern the research says uh, that, that, that non-Christians are saying, no, I would be interested if they will listen to me and, and not think of me as an evangelistic project. Well, I was... Um, I just come back from Europe, and I'm flying to Arizona, and uh, I, I sat down on the plane, and I sat down next to a guy. The minute he started speaking to the stewardess, I knew he was English, and I knew he was from London because he had a London accent, and he was very glad. He was really typically English, very reserved, and he had this great big book that he took out that honestly was a prop. I don't think he even read it. I think it was just to make sure he didn't have to talk to anybody. And so um, I prayed. That's the first thing you do. You pray silently. And I asked the Lord to open up the conversation and, and to guide. And I asked the Holy Spirit to come. When they served lunch, I he was speaking to the stewardess. And I said, oh, I always enjoy hearing a Londoner speak English. He goes, how did you know I'm from London? I said, you know, that we'd lived there uh, in, in England for seven years or in the U.K. for seven years. Now, one of the things you need to do when you're talking to somebody, find common ground. So many of the stories I talk about in Stay Salt is finding common ground. Well, our common ground was he had lived in my culture for seven years. I'd lived in his. We probably talked 45 minutes just about the fascination of comparing our two cultures. So then he says, Becky, why, why are you flying to Arizona? I said, I'm speaking at a Christian conference. He said, oh, I'm an agnostic. I have absolutely no interest in talking about spiritual things. Now, you want to be careful. of If somebody really isn't interested, you don't keep pressing. <clears throat> but I think we quit too early. And you got to 
you got to make sure. So he goes, I'm an agnostic. I have no interest in spiritual things. I said, that is so fascinating because I was once an agnostic. And I'm just curious if your reasons for not wanting to talk about spiritual things are the same as mine once were. He said, all right. He said, I don't want to appear rude. And he said, you strike me as somebody who's quite bright. But he said, Becky, how do you even know Jesus existed? So I talked a little bit, and this is where just some basic apologetics helps, mm-hmm. you, you know. But anyway, I just said, okay, and I explained different historians from Jesus' day, you know, Josephus and Tacitus and all those guys. And he goes, huh. So they verified the rely- that, that Jesus lived. All right. Well, what about, how do you even know if the Bible's historically reliable? Now, listen, people don't want a treatise. They don't want an hour on the subject. Yeah. Just find out enough. Just find that, that common you know, ground, huh? And so shared with him, uh, you know, why. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes, all right, I'm going to ask you something. I want to know. I want to know what the gospel is. And I'm like, just, I got to get this in. I shared the gospel, and it was a short version. And then guess what he said to me? What? I need to tell you something. My wife just became a Christian. Oh, wow. <laughs> She takes our children to church and prays at mealtime with them. And yeah. last night, my six-year-old son said, Daddy, why don't you ever go to church? He said, Becky, I, I am haunted by his question Becky, and such, how to answer it. Such a delight. I'm sorry we're out of time, but thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. This has really been fun. Wraps up our show for the night. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow.